I remember growing up as a kid, and you probably did this too, but uh, someone said very uh, in a bragging way that they could do something. And maybe it was un unbelievable for that kid to be able to pull it off. So the other would say, he didn't want to do it. And he'd say, well, I dare you, right? And then the response was, I double dare you. And then it would go on and so forth. Well, I remember as a kid, when the first person to get to, I dare you times infinity, right? And then the other guy would say, well, I dare you infinity. I dare you infinity times two, right? And it would go on from there. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that in relation to a quote I heard about the Trinity, where many people say the Trinity is one plus one plus one, so then you have three gods. So it's not one triune God. But D.A. Carson points out to us that actually what's infinity plus infinity plus infinity? It's infinity, right? So that's a great illustration of the Trinity, although it's not perfect, but it is yet a, a way to think about God in his triunity as we looked at last week. And as just a reminder, we did look at God as eternally exist in one essence in three distinct persons, our triune God. That's how he's revealed himself to us. And yet still there's much debate around how do we describe the Trinity? What exactly is the Trinity? How does that play out? So we'll start out tonight with a little bit of humor. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a video clip that we love and uh, describe, trying to put together the Trinity with uh, St. Patrick. Oh, so there is some debate and discussion over the Trinity as we looked at last week. But you see what we just defined it as just a little bit ago is God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons. And last week we looked at theology proper, that is God the Father. And this week we're looking at Christology. Now why not Jesusology or even Christology? Because theologians like to take things and make them harder than they really are, all right? But it's a reminder to us as well that this isn't something that's formulated in the last 30 years or even 100 years. But we use ancient words because this has been something that has been formulated throughout time for a very long time about the doctrine of Christ, which is what Christology is, the study of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So I want you to just take about three minutes there, get with a couple people around you, and on the back of your sheet there, you're going to see the top of the question, the top of the sheet is going to say, who is Jesus? What I want you to do with some people around you there is just discuss that, who is Jesus, and what passages would you use to uh, defend who Jesus is? All right, so we'll turn it over to you for just a couple of moments and uh, talk about who is Jesus and what passages would you use to defend that. Okay, we'll just start, and we'll just shout. Each row just shares one thing. Just shout it out, one thing. Back over there with the people in the back row. <laughs> one thing back there. Go ahead. Son of God. Son of God. Okay, excellent. The Buby row right there. The way, the truth, and the life. Mr. Curtis. Did you guys have one? Yeah. We'll take that. Very good. Okay, right here. Another one. Jesus was with God and he was God. John 1. Anything from this row here? Awesome. Excellent. You are the Christ, Matthew 16, 16. These guys here are trying to dodge it by asking us questions. 
He's got Ooh, a man. Excellent. A static union. Light and life. Excellent. He is the Christ. Luke nine. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Awesome. All good stuff. All things that are true about Christ. We're nuts. And I did that because there are so many things about Christ that we can't cover tonight. And those are some of that stuff. But here's the first one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's your first blank there under who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Colossians 1 verse 19 says, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 30, verse 31, as you'll see behind me here, this is what John said he wrote his gospel for. The synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic means similar. They're all kind of written from the ground up, from the earth up to heaven. It displays who Jesus is and makes its way to him being God. Well, John is actually written from the heaven down. It starts with who Jesus is, that he's God, and the whole thing throughout. In fact, John says, these things were written so you may know that he's the son of God and by believing in him he may have life in his name I like this one the best this is the one I go to in John chapter 8 Jesus is talking here with the Pharisees and I've broken this up a little bit we'll just work through it here he say, he's talking to them, and he says, your father Abraham. Now, if you remember who he's talking to, Jewish people here, was Abraham a pretty big dude in Jewish uh, times? Yeah, absolutely, right? He's their father, the father of Judaism. He says, he would have rejoiced that he saw my day. And, of course, the Jews respond with, you're not yet 50 years old. He wasn't even close to 50, actually. And you've seen Abraham? Well, we look at this, and then J- Jesus responds to them. He says, I'm sorry. This is what uh, Moses, it, we'll go back to Exodus here. So Jesus responds to him. I said, put it in there. What, what's his response there in John chapter 8? Before Abraham was, I am, right? So we go back, we, we put our fingers in our Bibles there at John chapter 8, and we go back to Exodus chapter 3, and we look at Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people, that is the people who are in bondage in Israel, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses from that burning bush, I am who I am. And he said, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me. So Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen, Abraham would rejoice to know my time because I'm pre-existent to Abraham. In fact, I am the one that was speaking to Moses, the one that's from the beginning. Now, do you think the Jews were, okay, cool with that, right? Now, if we go back to John chapter 8, their response was, so they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus had himself, hid himself, and went out of the temple. So they knew what Jesus was claiming. It wasn't just, oh, that's a little neat connection there, Jesus. No, they went to stone him to put him to death because he was claiming to be God himself. And then if we go to Matthew, this is Jesus' favorite favorite verse to go to because he's laying the foundation of who he is in the Old Testament, just like he was back in John chapter 8. But he's quoting Psalm 110 here. When he says this to the same Pharisees, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand that I may put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, okay, so David's, he's the son of David. But when David's speaking of him, he says, my Lord says to my Lord, right? So Jesus says, if he's a son of David, why would David call him Lord and put him on equal playing field with God himself? So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, I'm here with you right now, but my home before this was sitting next to God the Father as Lord. So you see this connection here where he's basing it in the Old Testament, and you know that this was a, a great argument. Because they use this throughout the New Testament, even after Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter uses it. But none of them dared ask him a question after that. It was his mic drop, mic drop moment where he just walks away. He's like, what? You got anything else to say? No, I don't think so. Right? He put it to bed. He said, this is who I am. And uh, I'm showing you this from the Old Testament, your scriptures, that I am God himself. And Jesus actually speaks of this as he calls himself the son of man, right? That's his favorite term to describe himself. Uh, so he's relating himself to humanity there, right? But also, what is Jesus relating to when he calls himself the son of man? To Daniel. When the son of man in Daniel's vision, the one that is one like a son of man who all the nations, all the other thrones bow down and worship him. So he's saying, I'm relating to you as a human, as a son of man, but also from the book of Daniel, the one that all others will aspire worship to. Now, as I said before, Jesus has been debated in the early church. There was um, Arius, a bishop that we heard about, uh, Arianism, um, and modalism, those other ones from our, our friends with St. Patrick. It's been uh, kind of debated in the early church, actually not kind of, but very much debated about who Jesus is exactly. Now, Arius, who came out from their Arianism, which believed that Jesus is not the same essence of God, but in fact, in time was created by God. He was certainly the firstborn of creation, but he was created by God himself. So he's not equal with God and certainly isn't God. Now, what other belief system would say that now? Morbidism. Morbidism, yep. Jehovah's Witness, yep, absolutely. They would say that God is the, the firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn, that he's not God himself. Well, that's from the very beginning. Here's one thing that I heard recently. Usually heresies don't come from outside the Bible. It's not people bringing in heresies to try to trip up the church from outside of the church. Usually heresies come from someone reading the Bible and reading it incorrectly and coming to conclusions about it. So they all got together in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea debating this question of who is Jesus. And because of that, came out of that back way back when in 325 AD was the Nicene Creed. And this is what they said about Christ and the Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten by the Father. Now, if you've memorized in the King James, John 3.16, his, his only begotten Son, right? That means to, it does mean in biblical language to be born from someone. So they're not getting rid of that altogether and saying that, uh, that he doesn't come from the Father, but yet look at this important word here, 
eternally begotten by the Father. So they put to rest the idea that God, that Jesus was created. He is distinct in that he's not the Father. He is the Son, but he is eternal. He was never created, and he has always existed. So that's, first of all, who Jesus is. He is God. Secondly, we'll see that Jesus is man. He's fully man. That's your next blank there if you're taking notes there. He's fully man. John 1 verse 14 says, in the word, the word was, in the, oh, excuse me, the word from the beginning took on human flesh and dwelt among us. You see John chapter 1, many of you quoted that, which was very good in defending the doctrine of Christ as God and also his humanity. But Luke 2.52 also says that Jesus was a man just like anyone else. I love this verse. It gives us an insight into Jesus. You know, I get asked a question all the time when I was a youth pastor. So when Jesus was a baby, did he know everything right from the beginning? Well, Luke tells us he doesn't. And Jesus increased in wisdom. If he knew everything, he wouldn't have to increase in it. In stature, he grew and in favor with God and with man. Anybody remember the second verse of um, Away in a Manger? Away in a manger. Right? No crib. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes. What's the next line? But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now I listen to that and I'm like, okay, if Jesus was fully human, if a cattle is right next to him while he's sleeping, right? That baby Jesus is waking up, all right? He's going to make some sounds because he's just like any other baby at that time, right? So Jesus was born from a virgin, Unlike us, but like us in the same way in that he was fully human. He grew tired. He grew weary. He got stomach aches when he had bad fish. He went to the bathroom. He, got, he took rest. He enjoyed eating. He was just like us, but yet distinct from us without sin. So fully God, fully man. Uh, but one has said, he added humanity to his deity, which would be totally true, Philippians 2. He became what he was not while remaining all that he was. Theologians call this the union of two natures. Anyone know? Hypostatic, Hypostatic union, right? That was from the Council of A.D. 451 in Constantinople. That's, again, one of those old, really old terms that tries to complicate things, and it just means two natures coming together in one person is what that means. All right? And uh, so it's not that Jesus is 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man coming together in one person. Now, how many of you like hip-hop? Good. One of you? Well, even if you don't like hip-hop, I think you'll enjoy the lyrics of this next song here. This is from a man named Shy Lin. Listen ah, in and read the ah. lyrics here. I, well, there's one line. Let me say this quote first. It says, what Jesus does not assume, he cannot save. Let me say that again. What Jesus has not assumed, he cannot save. So if Jesus did not become human, he would not be able to save humans because only a human can substitute for human life and only God can bear the wrath of God and survive, right? Right? So he had to be both in order to save 
humanity. And now I'm getting into Zach's talk, and I'm going to turn it over to him, all right? All right. Thank you very much, Brad. All right. So I, Brad did, who is Jesus? And I get, what has Jesus done? All right. So in theology, they call this the atonement. So if you got your uh, handout, the atonement essentially is the work of Christ, the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn salvation, right? So I know in this crowd, you guys know the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, right? It's the clearest, most concise declaration of the gospel. Uh, Paul says here that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? So you can take people right there. It's a historic event. Happened 2,000 years ago. It's personal. He did it for your sins. Uh, and then you can see the authority was it's derived from the scriptures. Amen? Now, the book of Romans essentially gives us the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So you've got the declaration in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, you read Romans every day, right? I love it. Yep. Every single every day. day. That's awesome. Yep. I just want to say that. Yeah, so... Um, I could pick a lot of sections in the book of Romans, but I just chose Romans chapter 3, 21 and 26. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I'll stop there. So in that section there, Romans, you finally get through the gloom and doom and the condemnation of mankind. And he finally says, but now, apart from the law, our righteousness has been revealed. That's good stuff. That's gospel right there, right? Um, I know we didn't touch this attribute last week about the wisdom of God. But again, only in the divine wisdom of God would we come up with a plan of salvation. You guys are very smart people here. If we had like 10 million years together, we would not come up with this exact same plan. That's how divine this wisdom of God is. All right, so just think of the major components, right? Prophecy, virgin birth, perfect life, death on a cross, resurrection. You've got, if you have Christmas, but no resurrection, no gospel. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. If you have the cross, but no resurrection, no gospel. Mm -hmm. So this plan, this wisdom of God is just, it's, it's divine. It's other, you know. And aren't we so thankful, and we're going to get to it next week, but the Holy Spirit reveals the mystery of that to us. Um, so that's just the beauty of it. Um, so I get, I've got three headings. I've got, what has Christ done? Number one is sacrifice. So I'll be honest with you, like when I first became a Christian, this one was hard for me to wrap my mind around. I didn't grow up in the sacrificial system. I wasn't in the temple worship of the first century. So I didn't know what it was like to bring a lamb or a goat or a bull. And sorry, let me just, sorry, I, my handout's a little different here. The first one is Christ made atonement and then, and then, uh, Yep. My bad. No, that's my fault. My fault. We'll fill it in the at the end, all right? We'll let him go, one, and we'll fill it in yeah. at the end. So the first one is, what has Christ done? He has made sacrifice. That's number one. We'll fill him in at the end if you didn't get him. So I, I made the keynote, so it's my fault. You keep going. 
So again, I, when I first became a Christian, I was like, what's sacrifice me? Because I did not grow up in that context where I had to bring a lamb or a bull or a goat. And if you read Leviticus, I mean, they brought this goat or bull or lamb, and they stood in front of the priest, and literally they slaughtered the, the lamb or bull or goat in front of you. If you were a poor farmer, if you were a poor person, and you watched that goat or bull, your only bull or goat, that's pretty big time, you know? Um, so I, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around the sacrifice, but Christ has made sacrifice for you and for me, right? So John, John the Baptist in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? He is our Passover Lamb. Isaiah Way back in Isaiah 53, prophesied about this lamb, the suffering servant, right? And then you go forward into the future, Revelations chapter 5, you have this scene in the heavens. And then, you, you know, it says several times, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who was slaughtered. Mm. And that was the thing that in the sacrifice of Christ, I don't really think about too much, but Christ made sacrifice. He was slain. He was slaughtered. For you and for me. Yeah, I was listening to something from Piper the other day, and he said, in heaven, that will be our, our song. We'll sing, yeah. we'll sing about a slaughter in heaven. That will be what we rejoice in. And yeah. so this, what Christ has done in the sacrifice will be our song for all eternity. For all eternity, yeah. yeah. So, it's, so in order to be the Passover land, lamb, number one, Christ had to be perfect. You guys know that, right? In the Bible, it talks about how Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law perfectly. And I, and I think about that and I reflect on my own life. Like, just before I got here, I was sinning. I was yelling at my kids, you know? It's like, he did this perfectly, you know? He lived out the righteous requirements of the law perfectly. It's just absolutely amazing, th- you know, to think about that in theology. Um, now unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So none of us have lived it perfectly. Are you going to get into this though a little bit later on? So maybe we should save it. No, a little bit. I mean, I, I was reading Luke uh, the other day and I was thinking about, uh, Christ eating, whining and dining with the tax, tax collectors. And then there was this prostitute that comes to him. And, you know, that's the scene where she falls at his feet, breaks the nard and, you know, wipes up the, the tears with their feet, you know. And, and again, it's one of those deals where you don't have that alabaster jar unless you're really good at what you do, right? And I just think that, again, maybe this is the man illustration, but to have a woman and everybody knew what this woman was and what she does for a living, right? To have her do that, and yet Christ is pure. Christ is perfect, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Does that make sense? I, I just kind of came to my mind, but it's just amazing mm-hmm. to think about that. Yeah, and in your reading of Romans it too, it says that uh, by one man's sin, all were made sinners, but through one man's obedience, the many were made righteous, right? Speaking of Christ and that his demands, he fulfilled the law perfectly. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so Christ living out the righteous requirements of the law, he qualified himself to be the sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice. Make sense? 
So now the book of Hebrews really kind of articulates and really teases us out in the theology. So Hebrews really tells us that he is the ultimate, he is the perfect, he is the once and for all sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin and death that we deserve. Make sense? Amazing what he has done in his sacrifice. All right, so in theology, uh, these theologians make much not only of the slaughter of Christ, but they also make much of the shed blood of Jesus. All right, so we are going to talk about that right now. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 actually kind of is where I want to go with that one. It basically just says... Um, uh, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, right? This is the precious or the great value to us is blood. And, and the argumentation in the book of Hebrews is stunning. He says to them, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, it never took away sin. Basically, every single year they would bring bulls and goats. And all it was was basically putting a band-aid on a bleeding artery. It never cleansed them from sin. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And um, it was just a reminder up to that point that, hey, I'm still sinful. Mm -hmm. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that this blood, this shed blood of Christ, it ushered in the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah 31. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And here's two phenomenal walkaways in that Jeremiah 31 uh, covenant. Number one, the shed blood is the forgiveness of sins. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, the world and other world religions are like really good at identifying problems, but they, they're not really good at giving solutions. Only in Christianity do we identify the problem that it's sin, and only in Christianity do we have the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? As a correct solution, as a correct satisfaction. And then the other benefit of the shed blood of Christ ushering in the new covenant, we have God will remember our sins no more. Mm. And you guys have read this in the Psalms. He removes our sin as far as the east is to the west. And then, you know, their thinking is these two points of the compass will never meet again. Does that make sense? So in theology, they talk about that God will never, I wrote this down here, God will never mention your sin anymore. Number two, God will never bring your sin up to anyone. And number three, God will not consciously think of them. He truly, the shed blood of Christ has truly removed our sins as far as the east is to the west. And that's why we can really proclaim Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, 8, 1. You know, therefore, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we were talking about this the other day. A lot of us, you know, we had this vision, or maybe we heard it in Sunday school too, that at the end of the judgment, God's going to pull out the big video screen and everybody's going to watch every sin that we've ever done. Now, I don't know about you. Well, you probably would be terrifying, but to me it was very terrifying to hear that. What is this in light of this? Do you, do you think that's, what, do you, what would you make of that? Romans 8.1, that's where I go. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's removed our sin as far as the east is to the west. I, I seriously... Because why would heaven be so awesome if we're going to get there and then we're going to roll the screen? Heaven's a feast. It's a love fest with the Father and the bride. I mean, it's, I do not, again, 
This, yeah, we'll be yeah. judged for right what we've done and things like that, but we won't have our sins brought up again against us because yeah, what, of the shed blood. Yeah, the of shed Christ. blood. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. That awesome. Amen. All right. Number two. Christ has become a propitiation. So not just a sacrifice. Or he is a sacrifice, but this sacrifice is a sin offering. All right? He's become, and just quite simply, I mean, this is, this is my own language. This is how it makes sense to me. But Christ in propitiation, he's become a wrath-removing sacrifice. That's my simplistic, sinful mind wrapping my mind around propitiation. I know it's more technical, but he is a wrath-removing sacrifice. Last week, we talked a little bit about the holiness of God, right? Um, he is distinct. He is moral perfection. This is his name. His holiness, his holy character demands payment. It demands justice. It demands satisfaction, right? And Christ, becoming a propitiation, completely satisfies the wrath of God. Does that make sense? It makes me think of John where he said, Jesus says, those who believe in me have life, but those who do not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God yeah. remains on them. So there's two options, right? Either you let Jesus Christ bear your wrath on the cross so that God's wrath is turned away from you, or what's the other option? We bear it for eternity in hell, which will never satisfy God's wrath, right? Yep. So that's what's so important. The propitiation is the wrath of God is satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ. Yep. Oh. You can think of you think of Second Corinthians chapter five twenty one. He who knew no sin became sin that we could become the righteousness of God, mm. right? And I just wrote this down on the cross. Jesus became the wrath removing sacrifice. He was the object of the wrath of God. Mm. Wave after wave of the full fury of an infinitely holy God was being poured out on the object of, of sin. You know, we don't have categories for this. And this is why Christ is to be exalted and amazed. Uh, it was an old song we, we haven't sung in a long time, and I think it was a Matt Redmond song, but it was the line where it says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. He is wholly other. We don't have a category for that. And Christ became the object of wrath. And from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, the fury of God who hates sin was poured out on the object of sin. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, so that's propitiation number three. Christ has become our substitute. Christ took our place on that cross, right? That's pretty easy to understand, that one. Karl Barth, uh, the Swiss theologian, was asked, you know, what's the most important Greek word in the New Testament? He pauses and he thinks, you know, like a theologian would do, and he says, hooper, hooper. Hooper. Yeah. And hooper means on behalf of or in the place of. Hmm. Christ has made he has been our substitute. He took our place on that cross. In theology, they talk about they recognize that we need a mediator, right? 
And this is kind of where it goes back to the hypostatic union here. God, Christ can fully represent God to man and man to God as the mediator. Isn't that wonderful? And then there, you know, famous verses. Um, you have um, 1 Timothy 2.5. So let me just read it real quick. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given in the proper time. 1 Timothy 2, 2 through 2-6. So a mediator is the one who comes between two parties in order to represent each uh, to the other to reconcile them. Now, this point, just go, this point goes right to justification. All right? Uh, Kurt, if you got to see the message this morning, he, he brought up that a little bit. Justification, again, these are my simplistic words. It's being declared righteous in the courtroom of God. There has been a change in God's records. His relationship towards the elect has been changed. Now, here's the most beautiful thing about it. You truly have to think of an accounting term, Right? The righteousness of God has been credited to our accounts. Now watch this. The righteousness of our self, our sin, has been credited to Christ. Does that make sense? He went to the cross as a propitiation. He bore the wrath of God. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, so for those of you who do know me, I love church history and my boy Martin Luther, so I'd be really, I would not be We doing... need to get you a Martin Luther's My Homeboy t-shirt. Yeah, I do, I need yeah. that. I decided to wear my Cub t-shirt. Con. <laughs> so, Martin Luther understood justification. This was his strongest point. This was his most epic contribution to Christendom. This, in my opinion, is why he should be on the Mount Rushmore of church fathers. He was not perfect, but this man understood justification, right? Listen to this. He said this was the chief article. When justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This doctrine was the master, the prince, the lord, the ruler, the judge of all kinds of doctrines. Luther was not perfect, but he pointed us to the object of our faith in Christ. He knew if he was going to stand before a holy God, he needed the righteousness of God not his own righteousness. Mm -hmm. And in justification, you have that. It's not a swap. It, I mean, it truly is a credit. It's, and theologians, they call it imputation. Mm -hmm. The righteousness of God was credited to your spiritual bank account. And the righteousness that we have, that we bring to the table, was credited to Christ, and Christ bore that on the cross. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Listen to Luther in this quote here. He says, Lord Jesus, oh, you got it. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not, Martin Luther. So again, I know those are just three bullet points that we kind of brought up, but uh, in Christ has become a sacrifice. He's the perfect the one and done sacrifice for all time. He is 
been our propitiation. He has been their wrath-removing sacrifice. Number two, he has been our substitute. He has done this on our behalf. And just a couple of comments here. You know, like, if the gospel does not excite you to your very soul, number one, two things have happened. Number one, you didn't hear it. Or number two, the person that was presenting it didn't present it very well. This is the most extraordinary story that we have. I mean, it's the most extraordinary reality and truth that we have in the gospel. Christ alone has dealt with your sin. There's no better news for, the, for, for mankind. You know, Christ has done something that you and I could not do, and he's done something what you and I do not deserve. All of us here deserve hell. There's only one person that deserves heaven, and that's Christ. Right? And so may Christ be our greatest treasure and joy and delight, peace and satisfaction, fulfillment, object of your faith. You know, may we make much of Christ today and, and for all time. So doctrine should always move us to adoration, right, and praise to God. So uh, we'll do a couple of questions. Uh, we'll do a couple of questions at the end if we have time. But let's stand together. Let's let's sing together. I don't know if we're gonna have time, so stick around if you want to. But we'll sing the wonderful cross together. We got the lyrics up here, and uh, let's respond in adoration to God and Jesus Christ in particular for who He is. <laughs>